We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to helping Christian leaders bring peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of God are central to discipleship. We publish teachings for leaders, resources for learners, and host interviews with frontline faith leaders about various topics. Our aim is to love the church, and we want to help you become the peace of Jesus wherever you are. Welcome everyone to season three of We The Peace. I'm your host, Josh Buck. In this season, we have been exploring what it means to have a Jesus-centered theology. We are learning that for our theology to be Jesus-centered, we have to adopt a global theology and celebrate theology from all over the world. It can't just be from the West. We've been learning a lot about how the Bible has been used in oppressive ways here in the West, and we're trying to move away from that to adopt Jesus-centered theology. We are in the interview phase of this season, and it brings us to our guest, Oshita Moore. She was kind enough to join us today. Writer, teacher, preacher, spiritual director for PAX, also spiritual director in training and school for that, which is amazing. Just released a book called Dear White Peacemakers, Dismantling Racism with Grit and Grace. Hi, Oshita. Hey, Josh. So tell us a little bit about yourself as we get started for those that may not know you. Yeah, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, the best place on earth, which is a lot for me to say because I am originally from Texas and I'm not supposed to love any place other than Texas, but (laughs) I love living in Minnesota. We moved here um, almost exactly four years ago. My husband and I pastor a small community together called Roots Covenant. He serves as lead pastor. I serve as community life pastor. I am in spiritual direction program, which is a dream. I've been receiving direction um, for a long time um, and have always wanted to be a director. And um, now I'm, I'm doing that. Um, I have three teenagers. My oldest is 19 and he's in his gap year. So he's working and saving and you know discerning about what to do for the future now that he's an official adult. And then I have two 15-year-olds, but one of them will turn 16 in a week. So they are 11 months apart. And yeah, I have spent the last, I would say maybe 15 years um, teaching in various spaces, primarily teaching and writing online. And then that expanded out into teaching in different churches and retreats and in groups. And in my writing, I'm just really obsessed with the Hebraic concept of shalom. So much so that my first book was on that concept. Uh, it's a book for women on everyday peacemaking called Shalom Sisters. But I really feel like, um, you know, the best way for us to live into Jesus's calling in the Sermon on the Mount to be peacemakers is to not have an expanded vision of peace, a vision that looks more like Shalom, where God's dream for the world as it should be is being actualized um, in us and through us in our everyday lives. Wow, that's powerful. I have to circle back to you saying that you love to live in Minnesota because it's November 3rd. We're getting into fall, and which is it really, listen, 
Thanksgiving, wonderful, not too cold. Christmas, it's getting there, a lot of snow. And then you hit January, February. How can it be your favorite place? Help convince me as somebody in South Bend right now. So I actually really, really love the winter. And it's not just because I love to be bundled up. Like I have, I always feel like you can add more layers. I'd rather live in a cold climate where you can add more layers, like in a super hot climate where you, where you can only like appropriately get like to one certain layer and then you're so hot and sticky. Um, so just practically, I like that. But I was thinking about this a couple of years ago. I was at a stop sign and it was like a really bitter cold day. It was like 10 degrees outside and it was windy. And I think it was like February. Yeah. And I was at a stop sign and I was like looking at people waiting at, at for the bus and looking at people bundled up in their cars and looking at people like walking their dogs. And I was just like living in this kind of climate really connects us. (laughs) It is like, we are all, no matter where you, where you are, where you're coming from, if you are human living in this climate, you are experiencing cold. And it's almost like this connecting unifying thing of like, yeah, we're going, it's us against the weather and Oh, there's just something about like, yeah, we can't escape the weather. We're all exposed to it. Yeah. And and also we lived in LA for a few years and that was not a good fit for us for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of the primary ones was we lived in Boston for 10 years before LA where um, a lot of my spiritual practices really formed Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of like, I've been through a, a couple of big, you know, deconstruction, reconstruction seasons in um, Boston and all of those tend to um, have, like they were formed in during certain seasons. So like I learned about Sabbath and resisting like the Western theology of like hustle because like the weather turned and I had to be more home focused. And so when we got to LA and I didn't have those external triggers to think about these different spiritual principles and disciplines, like I just was thrown out of whack spiritually. So I'm just wired to to live in a place like Minnesota. Well, somebody who also comes from LA, the built-in seasons have been helpful. And yeah, I can respect that, even though we suffer a little bit more than you, and that's okay. All right, so <laughs> we're, we're exploring Jesus-centered theology. I'm interviewing a lot of people from the Western world, from different backgrounds. And so we would just love to hear before we get into who are some of the theologians that you're learning from, Tell us about your own theological journey growing up, if I can say that. What was it like for you growing up in the U.S. and and learning theology? So I became a believer pretty young. Um, I started going to church on my own as a five or six-year-old because my mom needed daycare. She needed childcare. And we had a church, a Baptist church in our little small Texas town that offered two-week full-day VBS. And uh, it was like, <laughs> it just happened to be like at the right time where my mom had a gap in childcare. And so she put my sister and I in that. And it wasn't that I, my family was opposed to faith. Like I come from a very culturally Christian home. And I think, uh, I think as a black person, um, we're often like our homes are, there's, there's like a cultural understanding of faith in a lot of African-American homes. And so that's, that was kind of my, my um, you know, what, how it's introduced to God initially was like, oh yeah, like we believe in Jesus, we believe in God, but there wasn't a discipleship component at all. Um, and so when I got to the VBS and I thought, and I was introduced to like studying the Bible and memorizing these words, memorizing scripture and having a a conversion experience where you actually pray this prayer, where you're telling Jesus, like, I'm going to follow you. Like 
there was just such tradition and such like routine. Mm. And uh, again, like now I know it's, it was discipleship that I was noticing as a young girl. But like at that point, it's just like these people have faith and they actually, it actually matters to them. And so that was my first introduction to the Lord. But in terms of thinking about theology, I really never thought about theology outside of like, I was that kid in, in um, Sunday school that was always asking questions like, okay, so then Adam and Eve, and then they had their kids, but then where'd all the other people come from? And like, if everybody died because of Noah in the ark, and then they all came back, how did they repopulate the world? Like I had all these like weird questions and like, well, why would God like choose two zebras and not all the other zebras? Like I had all of these questions, right? And how did he pick those two zebras? And, and like, do zebras have a faith like like Noah that God was like, these two zebras love me the most? Like those were, those were the kind of questions I was asking in Sunday school and I was driving my Sunday school teacher crazy. And I mean, now I look back and I'm like, yeah, I had a brain for theology or had a brain for questioning, having questions about God that I was curious about and that uh like I, I couldn't shake, but that was a, there was a Southern Baptist church. So, you know, yeah. women really didn't teach. I didn't see any, any teachers or any pastors, anything like that. And that wasn't even something I thought about or wanted. Then I started attending an assembly of God church when I was like a preteen because they had the best youth group in our community. And so a lot of the churches kind of just sent their kids to the AG's youth group. And I ended up starting to go to that church. And that's where my um, godparents still attend. There's their elders there. And they, um, they're really formative in helping me understand what does it mean to be um, the family of God. And so that's where my theology was formed around that. Of like, I don't go to church just for knowledge, but I go to church for the relationships and things get messy in those relationships. And that's where you actually like practice forgiveness and things like that. But it was a very, like um, that theology was very sensational and very um, emotion driven. And for me as like a naturally emotional person, and now I look back and I'm like, I was just always exhausted because I was always defining my fidelity to Christ by how much I cried or waved my hands and things like that. And I'm still very much charismatic, but I let go of some of that showy, um, showy nature around that theology. And so I kind of just, I mean, I was just a magpie of the faith. Like I was yeah. very ecumenical. And my husband and I, when we got together, we just started attending a bunch of different churches because we were trying to discern like what tradition, like what stream we were most yeah. comfortable in. And that's kind of what led me to becoming an Anabaptist and having an Anabaptist framework and wanting to, um, whatever church I was in, um, wanting to to think about my faith from like a Jesus-centered peacemaking perspective um, and look for Jesus in the midst of all the different traditions, whatever church I go to. You talk about early Baptist years and then charismatic, and then you're talking about Anabaptist what it, what does it mean for you to be Anabaptist? I, explain for us what that what that means. For me, what it what it means is that Jesus is the center of my faith. Jesus is the center um, of my theology. So I am always looking for when I'm when I'm reading the Bible, I'm looking for Jesus in it. Um, I believe that the Bible is a story that points to Jesus, and we learn from Jesus, and then we see the church interact with the teachings of Jesus. Yeah. Um, 
And so it's all about Jesus for me, which I, I think that, you know, every, I think every Christian will say, yeah, it's about Jesus. But like that for me as an Anabaptist extrapolates out to, okay, so then the Sermon amount like actually matters. So when we talk about like our social ethic, we are talking about an ethic that champions those who have traditionally been marginalized, ignored. There's a reformation from below almost where I don't always hear that in other traditions that focus on like the, the radical countercultural alternative way of being that Jesus, that Jesus taught and modeled and invited us into to be an Anabaptist for me means that peace and all of the implications and, and all of the ramifications of being a peacemaker is a huge part of my discipleship. So that means that I don't, when I hear a scripture like turn the other cheek, it's not a good idea. It's not a suggestion. It's, it's an, it's a mandate from Jesus of like, this is how you, you engage with your enemy. Like yeah. this is how you respond to violence. So for me to be Anabaptist means to be deeply committed to the countercultural way of Jesus, to embodying the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So I pray the Lord's prayer pretty regularly because that to me feels like a very Anabaptist anthem. <laughs> if there is anything like that. Yeah. I'm like, this is how it is for me to be a disciple of Jesus. That's really good. Thanks for sharing what you mean by Anabaptist. Thinking even bird's eye view, you talk about your Baptist experience and then the charismatic experience and the Anabaptist experience. Those are all streams of Western theology. Mm -hmm. Um, At what point as a Christian did it begin to hit you that, okay, this is all a part of the same Western view and there's other theologies outside of the Western world or other theologians that don't come from Anglo-Saxon streams that you wanted to explore? Was there a moment in time? Was it like a book you read? Was it over a course of time that you came to that realization? I think it was more as I was coming to understand white supremacy and anti-racism. So part and parcel with me falling in love with Shalom and really like figuring out how to how to be an everyday peacemaker was me wanting to be at peace in myself and in my body as a, as a black woman, a huge aha moment for me because of all of those traditions I've been in, those churches have been predominantly white. Um, and I never really saw anybody that looked like me in any, any form of leadership. And even sometimes in the pews issues that mattered to me, like when James Byrd Jr. was murdered, he, he was a man from Texas. I was, I was a teenager and my, and my church never talked about it. Um, and it just felt like it's such a disconnect for me to be in this place that says we love Jesus and we love our neighbor, but like I'm your, I'm a Jesus following black neighbor and you're not saying anything about this horrible murder. So the more I started to understand how I can't be at peace with myself as a black woman, if I don't begin to acknowledge and say that God didn't make a mistake in making me black that there's something incredibly broken in this world that says that there's something about my skin that makes me a liability or makes me less than. So the more I started like learning about that, I started realizing that a lot of my my theology was formed by people who, if, if they didn't outright reject conversations around justice or that they, that they ignored it, or it was a secondary idea, 
And so that's when I started to realize that maybe I needed to begin looking at theologians who were talking about justice, who were introducing me to like liberation and helping me see that my ancestors engaged with the Bible in a different way than maybe my white neighbors in my church and that I should learn from that and I could learn from that. And because I don't believe I can be a peacemaker in the world if I'm not making peace within myself yeah. as a black woman, I have to, I, that's, that's something I have to navigate. And that does make it difficult for me as a black Anabaptist, which I know we're, we'll get to, but like, I can't do theology in, the, in this body unless I start reading from people who look like me or who are championing the mm. issues that matter to me so that I can experience shalom in this world, even though it's broken. Yeah. And talk a little bit about that intersection of being an African-American woman and a Baptist. And those are three, there's a lot more, but those are three intersections that you're bringing to the text. Mm -hmm. What has that been like for you? And if you're listening, a lot of this has been worked out in the books that Oshida has written. So please Google her, pick up the books. But what do those intersections look like as you're understanding the Bible and theology? The most difficult aspect of being an Anabaptist that I've had to do a lot of work with the Lord on is enemy love and the Imago Dei. Because one of the things I noticed about myself as I was decolonizing my theology and reading for more people who are not white, that there are some theologians who don't have an Anabaptist framework and to think of like... Um, unity with our white brothers and sisters as secondary to liberation for black and brown people. Um, and there's, I don't, I, I mean, I often say this because people will say to me, like, how do other black theologians or other black teachers engage with your work? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. Cause like that's pitting two black brown or black people with two different perspectives and backgrounds and who both done their work against each other. That's what white supremacy culture does. It's more I've learned from them on how to love being a Black person, but then I also have to hold that up against with Jesus' teaching that my expression of the Imago Dei um, is not better than my white brothers and sisters' expression of the Imago Dei, and that it's been very, very difficult for me to hold intention um, as I do anti-racism work, because there is permission for me to just be like, whatever, Whitey, like, you know, you, I don't like. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about where you are in this journey. And that is antithetical to my understanding of an Anabaptist principle of honoring the Imago Dei and loving your neighbor. Like if I can't, if I'm going to love myself as a black person, I'm going to take that same love and offer it to my white neighbors because that's what scripture tells me to do. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Almost intimate picture of, that struggle and that that wrestle and and that's so much of what we do when we come to the Bible is we have something over here and something over here and we go, how do these go together? And there is always tension. So to hear you expressing one of those tensions is is very helpful. And thank you for that. What have been some key thinkers as of late, theological thinkers or whatever, that have shaped your own view of God and your own theology? Yeah, so right now, um, Howard Thurman is a huge influence for me. I joke that he's my theological bae because I, <laughs> I super love him. Okay. Um, because here's the thing, and I, I, I've said this in lots of spaces before, so if somebody's heard me say it, I'm sorry. I often feel, I, I feel like because I, I've had such a Western um, theological formation, um, and I've worked in a lot of 
churches that hold like a really like evangelical and kind of mega church settings that a lot of my engagement with the church has been either deep theological conversations or like hustle, like a lot of work, like mm-hmm. building a church, plan, like planning a church, growing and growing a small group, you know, throwing an event da, 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 or like having these deep, you know, uh, conversations and aha moments and getting in debates and all of that. So I joke that I feel like I've always felt like a Luna love good in a world full of Harry and Hermione's because I have always been like a mystic and I've always kind of asked questions kind of like, well, which zebras get to get on the, on the ark? You know, like I really deeply believe that we are connected to each other. We're connected to the ground. We're connected to creation we're connected to each other and Thurman is one of those theologians as a black man I've I've just deeply appreciate it because he is a mystic he is a contemplative he does talk about kind of like that connection piece he talks about the interior life but he also talks about like our ex like our relationships with each other yeah he talks about God in this, this like deeply accessible way that's like God is with you in every moment of your day. And it's like, God's not just a fun thought experiment. Like God is in relationship with you. God loves you. And that's just not something that I have read a lot of prior to. Like I think Willie James Jennings was a really good introduction to that way of thinking. But then um, but then Thurman has just been so influential to me. And so like, I have a couple of his devotions that I read. He has one devotion about anxiety that I come back to quite often because I struggle with anxiety and it's just like, his words are so prescient, but he was a, he was a leader in the fifties and sixties. And he actually was an incredible influence on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I've read and heard accounts of how like people in the civil rights movement would seek Thurman out because he was sort of like the spiritual, he was a spiritual director for them. Like he was a refresher for them to like give them what they need spiritually to be like, do that internal work so that they can get out there and do the the work of the movement. And, um, and he's just, he's somebody that I deeply respect. Like he is on my top five people I want to have dinner with list from here on out. So for those who wanted to explore Howard Thurman as a contemplative theologian, it sounds like you have really felt at home, your theological bay, as you, you said. It's awesome. <laughs> what are some of the books that he has written or what's a good place to start for anybody who wanted to to pick up some of his material? If you are following Pax, then you are pretty passionate about justice and racial reconciliation. So I would say begin with his seminal Jesus and the Disinherited. People have said like that Dr. King would carry Jesus and the disinherited and the Bible with him when when he would travel. So I would say like Jesus and the disinherited get in that because he does a really, really good job of helping the reader understand that Jesus's experience on earth is very similar to the African-American experience in that he was subjected to an oppressive empire. And that's another thing about being an Anabaptist that I straight up love is empire critique. Like I like thinking about the kingdom of God and how that is a more sustainable and holistic way of living and view of, view of engaging um, as opposed to uh, putting my trust in whatever 
country or empire empire that I'm in. And so Jesus Inherited does a very good job at helping. I think it's great for white readers to kind of see the connection because oftentimes when I have a conversation with a white person about race, to them it'll feel like, oh, this is just an like this is a you're just saying this to cause conflict. This isn't really rooted in the gospel. Where is Jesus in this? Da, da, da. And so I'll hand them Jesus and disinherit it and say, like, it's Hattie. Well, not Hattie. I mean, it's it's like it's it, there's a lot in it. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a but like read this. It'll help you understand. And then I often read reflections from meditations um, of the heart, which is one of my favorite kind of devotionals that I go that I go back to. Um, over and over again. Um, and then I just got, I have not read it, but I just got Deep River about Negro spirituals, yeah. which I am super, super excited about. So I would say, you know, start, start there. Meditations of the heart for like daily reading. Jesus and Disinherited to understand the intersection between the way of Jesus and anti-racism. Yeah. And then you'll fall in love and he'll be your bae too. So. <laughs> That's awesome. He'll be your bro or your bae. <laughs> So a question, it's and it's not on the list I, I've got for you. What are some of the things, Oshita, that you've been wrestling with lately theologically? And when I say theologically, I don't I don't necessarily mean like it's got to be a book about a heady specific topic about like the atonement or whatever. But just mm-hmm. what are some of the questions about God you've been wrestling personally with over these last few years with COVID? I think that'd be meaningful for us to learn from. One of the biggest things that I have had to read frame and constantly question is prayer and what is prayer i've read people who say prayer is just for us you know it's just a it's just a discipline conditioning our heart there's no it's not a magical thing that we do it's not changing god's mind it's mortifying our sin and then i've also you know because of my pentecostal background i've read lots of stuff that's like you know, prayer matters. And if you pray at this time, or you pray this way, or if you pray this scripture, it feels very Harry Potter. And so I've kind of gotten rid of that. And I'm just kind of in this place where I am asking myself, when I pray for someone, am I believing that God is big enough? Like, for instance, by praying for healing, am I praying for that person to be healed? And if they don't get healed, then what does that mean about prayer? Because I, I, I'm past the point where I'm questioning God's character. I've seen enough of God's character in Jesus to know he is good and he is faithful. But what does that goodness and faithfulness mean in a broken world? You know, I teach at Greg Boyd's church, so I believe that, you know, there are there are spiritual forces. We're caught in a world fair war, a world warfare worldview where like we're caught in the crossfires of a spiritual battle. So I believe that, but just my, I'm still questioning like, okay, so what does my prayer at two 30 on a Tuesday afternoon after I get a text, what does that do? Yeah. And I'm kind of in this place. I'm 40. I've been a Christian for 35 years now. Um, I'm kind of in a place where I'm just like, you know, there's some things that I can just, that I can just think about in front of God and I don't have to have it figured out. 
And prayer is one of those things. So it doesn't shake me. Like my faith isn't shaken because I don't have a clear cut answer. I mean, I find myself more explaining what I mean when I say I'm praying. Like I'll find myself saying, I'm praying for you to have God's peace. or I'm praying for God to show me how I can support you. Like I find myself explaining it more and almost being like, okay, God, I think this is what I'm supposed to do Um, because I'm still working through it. That's powerful. You know, for anybody who's younger listening to this right now, feeling disoriented with everything that's happening in the country amidst the COVID pandemic, disoriented with coming to terms with white supremacy as it affects their lives, their bodies, their space, the talk about decolonizing Christianity and their faith and not really knowing how to go about that, and then just distrust in the local church. What would be your your message for them right now? Well, I think my initial message is that I get it, and I'm sorry, because a lot of people have experienced a lot of hurt because of the church. And I often think about Nadia Bowles-Weber and how when she was planting her church, they had like a like an orientation for new members kind of class, and she says, listen, I'm going to mess up. Like, I'm going to disappoint you. Somebody in this room is going to disappoint you. And she basically just said, like, the church is us enduring past that. Like, from the outset, we're going to set our expectations. And I think, you know, when we talk about Western theology, I often think about white supremacy culture, and there's just the emphasis on quantity, and there's such an emphasis on output, and there's such an emphasis on... on external metrics and looking good. And a lot of people have been harmed because we've cared more about what we put out and what we look like than our interior work and our humility. Wow. And so I would say, I'm sorry, and I get it, but I would say I'm a naturalist and I find God out in nature all the time. But then I take that back into the local church and share that because God is a relational God. Um, We have this theology of Jesus coming and being among us, embodied Emmanuel, God with us, because relationships matter to God. And so if you can find a church where you can be honest with the leadership there about your pain, but say, you know, I'll need extra care, but I want to lean into relationship. I think that that is the greatest calling of pastors right now is to hold that pain and say, I'll walk with you while we're in community and I will be, I will be your companion to your healing around this. Um, So one of the things that TC and I do at Roots, and we have been in so many of these meetings, like it's, it's almost comical. It's like, it's like a particular ministry or something for Roots where we have people who have been serving in churches in different capacities and they're burned out. And so they come to Roots. And we have had so many meetings where we're like, don't serve, just be with us. Like, don't, we're not expecting anything from you. And it's so funny because when we first came, because Roots was without a pastor for a year, there was a big hustle. Like, we've got to get new members. We've got to grow all these things. And TC and I were just like, this isn't it. For a year, we were like, this isn't it. We made that shift and we've just been like, we're just going to love the people that God brings us. And we're going to just, we're not going to have flashy programming and we're just going to like be a place where people can rest and heal. Yeah, We've just seen that that's been a, a deep ministry that people need right now because so many people are hurting and they don't, my concern is oftentimes people just throw the baby out with the bathwater 
that are like, I've been hurt yeah. by church so much. I'm not ever going back to church, but there are some good pastors who will, who will be your companion. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Last question that I ask everybody at the end of the interview, what is key to peace in the 21st century? Humility, humility. We've just sat under a masterclass of pride and narcissism for four years because of an administration that did not center humility. And I think that in order for us to have peace with one another, we have to be able to say I messed up. So we have to have a strong protocol for repair and reconciliation. And none of that happens without humility. And if Jesus can humble himself, even to a cross when he didn't do anything wrong, he didn't deserve it. We can humble ourselves and say, I I got that wrong, or I, I need to learn more, or I don't have to be right to be in right relationship with you. That doesn't mean that we don't take stands. and That doesn't mean that we don't choose sides or things like that. Like, I feel very strongly that injustice needs to be called out, but it's in the way that we call out injustice. Because I deeply believe that, the, like Dr. King, the ends must be within the means. And Dr. King says the ends is, is the beloved community. The ends is reconciliation. Yeah. So I cannot view you as beloved if I don't have a humility to say that I am beloved in spite of all of my brokenness. So yeah, I think what we need is an infusion and a discipleship towards humility. Oshita, where can people find you online after they hear this interview and want to get involved with your work? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Oshita Moore, over on Instagram. That's mostly where I am. And then if you're in the Twin Cities, come visit me at Roots. Thank you so much for your time, Oshita. Thanks, Josh. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this podcast, We the Peace. You can find more resources at madeforpax.org and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at PAX. This is We the Peace.